Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast. I'm your host, Jeannie Hedden-Gallagher, and this week, our theme is discoveries in space. We'll start by speaking with two researchers who recently figured something out about our galaxy that could fundamentally change our understanding of it. My colleague, Mary Martilli, has more. I spoke with Heidi Newberg, a Rensselaer astrophysics professor, and her graduate student, Tom Donlan. They collaborated on a fascinating discovery about the Milky Way, and I asked them to explain what they found. Professor Newberg, tell us about this discovery and how that fits in with your work. So for the past uh, 20 years, I've been studying the halo of the, the, well, it's the stars in the outer parts of the Milky Way. Um, the disk sits inside the Milky Way galaxy, and the, gal- and the outer parts of the Milky Way galaxy have another population of stars. Um, that's not the spiral arms. It sits inside uh, a dark matter halo that also has stars in it. And, uh, you know, when, 20 years ago, we used to think of it as just this uh, set of stars that was there when the Milky Way formed. They're there from the formation of the Milky Way itself. And what we found over the last couple decades is that um, the stars in, the, uh, in this halo, what we call the halo part of the galaxy, are stars that were actually formed in another galaxy. They were not formed in our galaxy. They're immigrants. <laughs> and they fell into the, the Milky Way. Uh, the, gal- the smaller galaxies fell in, and then they're ripped apart by what we call tidal forces, the same kind of um, differential force that makes tides on Earth will pull stars as they fall into the Milky Way, pull stars off of dwarf galaxies and incorporate them into our galaxy. And when a dwarf ga- galaxy falls in on a kind of circular orbit going around the Milky Way, then, then as the stars come off the dwarf galaxy, they get pulled ahead or pulled behind. And uh, what we're seeing here now for the first time is a dwarf galaxy that has fallen in through the center of the Milky Way, what we call a radial orbit. We call it falls right through the center. And you can imagine this dwarf galaxy going right through the center, and all of a sudden the, the gravitational forces in the center are going to be a lot, uh, a lot larger than they were in the outer parts. And so the, the dwarf galaxy just gets ripped apart when it goes straight through the center of the galaxy. And then the, the stars from that, what once was a dwarf galaxy, go um, out away from the galactic center, slowing down as they go up through our gravitational well. They slow down and eventually you know, like as if you ball, threw a ball up from the earth, they would turn around and come back and the stars turn around and come back and they go right back through the center of the galaxy and then they turn around and come back. And at those turnaround points, they have to stop and turn around. And when they stop and turn around, then they build up there. And you see this shell is what we call it, a shell of stars that um, occurs when that turnaround happens. And so... Uh, we have seen this kind of shell structure in other galaxies, and this is the first time that we've ever seen a shell structure in our galaxy. So, Tom, what got you interested in looking at the shell structures? We were looking through new data of um, a very high-resolution survey of stars, in the Milky Way that is just being put out now. It's called the Gaia Survey. And um, the survey found that there was this really ancient merger event 
called like the Gaia sausage that maybe if you've heard in some pop five stuff, there's this ancient merger with the Milky Way and another big galaxy called the sausage or Gaia and galaxy. And so we were kind of digging through the data and looking for if we could find any remnants of this merger event. And we ended up seeing that um, there are these regions of higher density in the Milky Way that people have known about for a while. And uh, we were looking in them to see if we could identify whether they were related to this really ancient merger or not. And kind of by surprise, we ended up finding out that there were clumps in the stars that looked kind of like the umbrellas or looked like the shells. And when we started to pull out and look at them and uh, kind of rewind those stars back in time, they formed a, a very nice uh, dwarf galaxy that had fallen in, but it wasn't at all the time that they had said for that old ancient merger. And so we knew that we had something new on our hands that couldn't be uh, what they were saying was that guy a sausage merger. I, I'd like to add something if I can. When we look for tidal streams in the halo of the Milky Way, one of the ways we look for a tidal stream is to look for a whole group of stars that is moving the same direction because they're all following or, or leading this dwarf galaxy. You look for something that's all going in the same direction. And in this region of the sky called the Virgo over density, there's like more stars out in the halo in the direction of this Virgo over density. There's been this thing for a very long time that we see a whole bunch of stars that are moving away from us. And then we also see some stars that were moving towards us. And it's very strange because you see a big overdensity, you think they all should be moving in the same direction. You know, if they're all part of the same thing, they should be moving the same way. And because we had this lens of seeing the halo as a bunch of streams, it seems like, well, then you have to have two streams, one going away from us and one coming towards us. And we hadn't really thought very hard about these radial mergers. Um, because it's kind of a new a new thing to find. Um, and so when you find this radial merger, then all of a sudden you have this aha moment. I know why. I know why I've been seeing stuff going out and stuff coming back in. And it's because they're on this radial orbit and they are part of the same thing. And the reason I see the overdensity is because they're turning around. And so the first paper that Tom wrote as an undergraduate student was putting that together. Like, oh, this thing we see here that seemed to have a whole bunch of different velocities is really one thing, and we can understand why the velocities are all different. That's amazing. So what are some of the implications of this finding? This section of the Virgo over density and figuring out what that was and figuring out that this is a radial merger uh, happened a little after um, other uh, research that Tom mentioned had found uh, this Gaia sausage or this Gaia Ancelotus merger um, in the local solar neighborhood. They found a, a bunch of stars that were on radial orbits. And then the question is, is that radial merger and the one that he was looking at, are they the same? And the time that all of the other researchers who had studied the local phenomenon had given was 10 billion years ago. Um, that this thing fell into the Milky Way. 
and that 10 billion years ago is when the thick disk of the Milky Way formed. And so this was going to be the thing that caused the thickness disk to form 10 billion years ago. And that's what the titles of the papers were. You know, this is what we, we found the thing that fell in 10 billion years ago. And what Tom has been able to do in this paper is to determine the age, how long ago this thing fell through the center of the Milky Way by looking at how many times, how many turnarounds. So as it, as it goes through the Milky Way, it, every time it turns around, then there's another shell that forms. And, um, and so if you look at how far apart these shells are and, and model how long it would take for that shell structure to occur, um, you come out with something, was it 2.8 billion years ago? And if it happened longer in the past, then we wouldn't see the shells because the shells would get, uh, you would have, it, it would go back and forth so many times that everything would be all mixed up and you wouldn't see the shell structure at all if it, if it had taken 10 billion years for it to go back and forth. You wouldn't see it. The other important thing that, that um, kind of comes out of this is that in the local solar neighborhood, most of the stars in the halo are in what's called this Gaia sausage or the Gaia Enceladus merger. So this whole component of the Milky Way that we see today is way younger than our galaxy. It's, it's something that none of us expected um, and we're still trying to understand and wondering about and trying to think, is that really the case? Is it really the case that this thing that happened less than 3 billion years ago, this merger that happened less than 3 billion years ago, is really almost all of the, the halo component of our Milky Way um, is, is still something we're, we're trying to wrestle with. It sounds like this raises a lot of interesting questions. Anything else to add? As people are digging into this, this new Gaia data and um, looking deeper into the, the history of the Milky Way than we could before, they're starting to see things like um, what they call the Gaia snail, which is... Uh, basically, it is how the disk is moving up and down in wiggles, which is something that um, we've seen before and that uh, Heidi has worked on before. And it, there is also something called the splash, which is that they think that there was a large amount of material um, either ejected from the center of the Milky Way at some time or if some other event that we aren't really aware of what happened. So it, it's kind of this thing where once you realize what you're looking at, and once you see that, oh, there's some merger event here with this time, then all the puzzle pieces start to fall into place. And you say, wait, it could be this, wait, it could be that. And you have to see more and more evidence that this thing really could be responsible for the current state of the Milky Way. Next, we'll hear from two researchers who are working on technology that is making it possible for new experiments with far-reaching implications to be conducted on the International Space Station. They spoke with Tori Wells. Amir Hursa is a professor of mechanical aerospace and nuclear engineering at Rensselaer, and he's working on a novel approach to studying fluid dynamics, which could play an important role in our understanding of diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. I recently spoke with him and his graduate student, Joe Adams, about sending their research to space. 
Professor Hersa, can you tell me what your lab is up to and how it relates to space? So we're trying to understand how uh, shear stress, basically hydrodynamic stress, flowing fluid, you might say, how does flowing fluid uh, causes uh, certain kinds of uh, pathological structures to occur in proteins. So we're in particular looking at how uh, interfacial shear, so shearing motion, fluid flow at uh, interfaces at say, surface of a liquid causes a protein uh, to misbehave and form these pathological structures known as amyloid fibrils. Uh, and so what took us to space uh, is a way to study uh, this question, a way to address the, the, the question of how does uh, shear causes uh, fibril formation, amylofibril formation, in the absence of other factors. So uh, by going to space, we were able to, you know, we invented a uh, device, a, a way, a concept where you could still shear the fluid through a notion called surface shear viscosity. So a way to shear the fluid, but not really have it contained, no, not have it interact with the container. And so that's what space provides. Uh, by removing gravity, you're able to have, this is uh, in the microgravity environment, you're able to have uh, containment, basically fluid holding itself together as a result of surface tension. And I think I should take a step back too and ask you to explain this idea known as the ring shear drop. Where did that idea come from that all of this research now stems from? So the ring shear drop, uh, for good or for bad, I can say or admit it was my invention. Uh, we were trying to figure out a way where you could uh, shear fluid uh, without without really touching it with or minimally touching it. So the idea is basically uh, you, you grow a large drop in, in the case of the space experiment uh, in, the, in its current uh, form, it's just over uh, two and a half centimeters. So uh, just about an inch in diameter. Uh, on Earth, you couldn't be growing a drop that size. It'll you know, flop over because of gravity. Uh, so the idea is uh, you, you grow a drop uh, to that size, and then you just contact it with a sharp edge ring uh, at, say, northern latitude and southern latitude. And this way, you can have one of those rings uh, be stationary and the other ring rotating. So uh, this way you can produce shear because otherwise if you have both rings rotating, there'd be no shear. You'll just have a solid, it'll, it'll behave as if those are solid. And the result of the fact that one is rotating, one is stationary, gives you uh, a lot of mixing. And the reason you get quite a bit of mixing as opposed to uh, if you had a pure fluid, when you have proteins in the system, the surface of that drop becomes viscous. So uh, it becomes a fairly good way of producing mixing. So that's that's where the idea came from. It, it, was, a, uh, it, it was an invention that goes back now eight years. And we wrote a proposal to uh, NASA and they liked the idea. Uh, they uh, have invested in, in having it built. They send it to space last July, uh, July of, July of last year, pardon me. Uh, 2019, it was it was deployed. You know, there was success. The hardware basically worked, uh, but we didn't notice that if if the fluid was pure, like water, it worked beautifully. The calibration worked 
perfectly in the in its first attempt, which was surprising. Usually, nothing works the first time, but uh, this this was uh, NASA uh, contracted hardware, so they, they they know what they're doing, obviously, and and the experiment worked perfectly. When we had uh, protein, which is somewhat soapy in in nature and has much lower surface tension than pure water, uh, the experiment. Uh, had a had a weakness uh, part of the, the 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 tube where the protein is coming out of it uh, would outside of it would get wet and that changed the geometry and kept the drop from uh, growing large enough to be able to contact the two rings the one stationary ring and the one rotating ring uh, to make a full size drop uh, and that's exactly the problem we're looking at now so. Basically, the way I'm thinking of it is is essentially a dance uh, between science and technology. As with everything else, there's always a dance between science and technology. You have to have uh, means of uh, learning new things. So that's your technology to discover new science. In here, the two go hand in hand. We're using hardware, which involves new technology uh, to learn to improve our science. But now we're also using science of interfacial phenomena, for example, and contact line dynamics and other things to try to improve the hardware uh, so it'll work uh, even with uh, protein. And Joe, can you talk about some of the ways that you're working through those challenges that Professor Hurst had just mentioned? A big part of that is this thing called the knife edge viscometer. It's very similar to the ring shear drum except it is in a bucket. We have some cylindrical container that now contains the fluid because it's on earth, it's under gravity. And then a ring or what we call the knife edge touches the surface and spins to shear this liquid. Now, the flow field is very similar to that of the RSD. The big difference is that containment. Now it's a glass dish, not just surface tension. It's not just a drop, it's in some container. Now, a big part of this is protein work some of it is also biologicals. So the idea of maybe using some bioreactor to produce pharmaceuticals or have some sort of research on the ISS. So one of my big projects was investigating how you could grow microbes in such a system. So this was all done on the ground. All our microorganism work has been performed in the knife edge and the upcoming parabolic flight will have a big component of pinning drops of microorganisms in this ring shear drop. And some of these questions you answer could help us understand what's happening inside the body. Can you talk about some of the applications of the research? Absolutely. So a lot of the applied reasons for this research, sort of more industrial, if you will, um, have to do a lot with sort of pharmaceuticals or native proteins, native particles to the human body. So a big one for our proteins is uh, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, looking at how the molecules um, in our brain then, so the, the two culprits are sort of the tau protein and the amyloid beta, um, which form plaques in our brain and end up killing the neuronal cells, and that's what leads to Alzheimer's. Um, this, many people study using heat kinetics, but it's not really applicable to biology. Um, the brain stays at, you know, it does have a cycling temperature, but it's not drastic enough as what happens really in these sorts of um, uh, studies with heat kinetics. So it may be a bigger influence, or at least partially an influence, is shear flows like we're studying. Um, and the concentration of protein after it builds up for whatever reason in this disease state 
and then is sheared by natural flow in the brain, um, which changes in sleep and uh, wake cycles and um, throughout, you know, how you live your life, your lifestyle. Um, this could have a big influence. Um, on the pharmaceutical end, a lot of this has to do with stability. So when we use pharmaceuticals and we use many different kinds of molecules, they're moving through tubes and being shaken in bottles. And if you go to an ER, you're going to probably get an IV. Um, that's very much uh, subject to shear flow um, and different sorts of things which could affect the lifetime or the use, how functional these molecules are. You both have backgrounds in aerospace engineering. So I'm curious, did you ever expect that you'd be working in this area of human health? This this was not my design, I assure you. I had no idea where I would end up. Uh, my passion was for airplanes. And then uh, training as an aerospace engineer uh, in graduate school eventually uh, basically uh, made me a halfway decent flute mechanician. And it was the fluid mechanics, uh, fluid motion that led to this problem. So uh, it was it was a series of accidents, like everything else in life. Series of not accidents, but but serendipity, serendipitous uh, events. One thing led to another, and that's where we that's where we ended up. Joe, well, I've been looking for something very much, including a lot of different disciplines. So when I came into undergrad. Um, I went into, I had three bachelors, so aerospace engineering, biology, and mechanical engineering. Figured I liked them all. Um, and I guess as much as I like the interface between disciplines, just so turns out, I like the interfaces between liquids and air, too. So I did a master's then in aerospace engineering. I'm pursuing another in chemical and biological engineering. And then I also now have my PhD in aerospace. So I've always liked biology um, and sort of the relation to fluid mechanics or structural mechanics, any kind of sort of interplay between these um, different fields I've always been very drawn to. Um, and I think that a lot of areas that interfaces, conceptually that is, um, have a lot of novelty going on and they can be very, very interesting. This episode of Why Not Change the World was recorded remotely due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Please take a moment to rate the podcast on whatever app you're on. And if you'd like to learn more about what's happening at Rensselaer, visit rpi.edu. Thanks for listening.